seated. And please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and then we'll make our way through Matthew 6 and on into 28 through the course of our time in God's Word. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, and we're continuing and, in fact, concluding a short study uh, today about the nature of the church, about who we are together, who we are as the people of God, uh, and today we'll be looking at the purpose of the church. We've looked at the head of the church, Jesus Christ. We've looked at the message of the church, the gospel. Last week we looked at the people uh, of the church, that we are his body. We are the body of Christ. We're the family of God, and we are the bride of Christ. And today we'll look at the purpose of of the church, the purpose of the church. And in order to do that, it would be, I think, quite natural to go to Matthew 28 first, but I think uh, Jesus doesn't begin there with his people. In fact, there are 27 chapters before Matthew 28, in which Jesus gives a, a clarity of purpose for his people that he will one day in Matthew 28 commission with what we know as the Great Commission to go therefore and make disciples of many nations. So that's where we will end, but in order to get there I think appropriately in following the teachings of Jesus, we'll look at three purposes of the church, which really summarize a singularity of our purpose, is that the church worships God, the church embodies the kingdom, and the church makes disciples. So the church worships God, the church embodies the kingdom, and the church makes disciples. So when we think about our purpose, what is it that we're supposed to do? Not just when we're together, but even when we scatter, when we spread out throughout the city and world, what is the church? What are the people of God? What's the family? What's the body? What's the bride supposed to be about? We're supposed to worship God. We're supposed to embody the kingdom. And we are supposed to make disciples. And I, I, I trust, and by God's grace, through his word, that we will not only learn about these things, but learn to obey these things uh, today for his glory. So let's pray, ask for his help in this particular regard, and we will get to work from there. So Heavenly Father... Uh, we are, are mindful of so many different things this morning. Uh, perhaps our minds are pulled to Afghanistan and realizing the turmoil and pain and, and chaos that befalls that particular country. God, we pray in particular for our brothers and sisters uh, who live in Afghanistan. Would you protect them? Would you encourage them? Would you help them with boldness and conviction to trust you, God, and to even be used by you in powerful ways, in, in ways that we can't even fathom. We can't even begin in our particular culture and climate to understand what it must be like for them. And so we pray you would encourage the church there. And we pray for peace, and we pray that you would help us to lament and to grieve with those who are grieving, even now, God. We pray for countries like Haiti that are still being put back together after devastating natural disasters, after devastating inclement weather. We pray even for those who are preparing on the east coast of our own country for tragic and difficult weather uh, coming to them. And so, God, we're pulled by those things because you've called us to be. You've called us to be weary and heavy laden with the things of this world, and yet that's not the full story. We don't just come sorrowfully today. We come with hope. You're, you're building your church here in Logan Square. You're building your church through your people. Stories of repentance and recovery and healing are happening in our church family. School is back in session tomorrow for many of us, and for that we rejoice. We're grateful. Father, we pray a blessing upon those who will be serving uh, thousands of children in this city uh, in the coming days for the very first time in a, in a long time. And so in all of that, in that sorrow and celebration, we come to you, God, and we ask for your peace. We ask that you would sharpen our hearts and our minds. Pray that you would soften us with your compassion, with empathy, 
We pray that you would prepare us well for what you have called us to do, to be a people who worship God, to be a people who embody the kingdom and those who make disciples. So help us to that end, we pray. Help, help me to be clear and responsible with your word today. I ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Uh, Matthew 4 may be a passage familiar to many uh, of you. It is a story of when Jesus is led into the wilderness by God's spirit to be tempted by the devil. And the interesting thing about that, and the interesting thing about all of Jesus' life, is that it's not an accident. Jesus saw this coming. In fact, it's, it's with clarity that Matthew writes that he follows the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And, and as Jesus fasts and prays for 40 days and 40 nights, the, the evil one does come and he tempts him. And he tempts him in three different ways. First, the evil one tempts Jesus with food. He knows Jesus is hungry, and so he tells him, turn that rock or that stone into bread. But Jesus quotes scripture and says that he doesn't live by food alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Next, Satan tempts Jesus with entitlement. The evil one tells the Messiah angels are obligated to save him, but Jesus quotes scripture again and says that the power of God is not for cheap tricks. The power of God is meant for his purposes. Thirdly, the evil one comes and tempts Jesus with glory. The evil one shows Jesus the kingdoms of this world, and he says, all you have to do is give me glory, give me honor, and worship me. But Jesus again quotes scripture and says, God is the only one worthy of worship. So let's look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 and 11, and look more closely at this third temptation and how Jesus responds and what it means for us as a people of God, the church, to worship God. It says, again, the devil took him, that's Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And their glory, verse 9, and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. Now, all of this has been about worship. Everything that the evil one has been saying to Jesus and, and trying to get him to do has always been about worship. However, it's fitting for us to understand that Satan never is very explicit about that until the very end. Satan would have been obvious, it would have been obviously fruitless if Satan from the very beginning says, Jesus, worship me. So what does he do? What does he do to try to garner a listening, garner an audience from Jesus? First, he plays to his physical weakness and his physical pains. He says, you're hungry, right? You should get something to eat. Then he strokes his ego and ability and status. See, he is trying to lure Jesus to make a decision of centering himself. Think about yourself. Put your hunger first. Put your glory and your ego first. Build your decisions on yourself, on his own hunger, his own glory, his own word, his own will, his own perspective. He wants Jesus to center his life on himself. That's what worship is all about. So even though Satan is not explicit about worship until the very end, he is very much focused on worship the entire time. And isn't it true? In our dealings also with spiritual temptation, with the evil one himself, he never begins with worship. He never starts with our, an explicit request to come and worship another god. What does he do? First, he invites us to drink a little bit too much because you deserve it. You've had a hard week. First, he gives us permission to indulge in anger and vanity and excess because it's all about you. First, he whispers untruths about your unworthiness or your lack of value or your lack of lovability. You should be ashamed, is what he says to us. See, only after these games, only after building an argument, does the evil one more explicitly say, fall down and worship me. 
First, he talks about us. He gets us to center ourselves on ourselves because that's what worship is all about. Worship is all about centering our lives on someone or something. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 puts it this way in sort of a general call of worship. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That kind of act is holy and acceptable to God because he is at the center of that action. See, Paul is instructing the church to worship, worship God in a holistic fashion, not just in the songs that we sing, not even just in our posture, our behavior, when we are with the people of God, when we're on our best spiritual behavior. See, a biblical understanding of worship is all about offering our lives to the will and glory and purposes of another, namely the Lord. So worship is about centering our lives on God, and that is central to our purpose as the church, to center our lives, our ideas, our thoughts, our habits, the way we interact with one another. All of those things are meant to be centered on God. So what's that look like? Well, it looks like Jesus in the wilderness. It looks like living by every word that comes from the mouth of God, not bread. It looks like putting God, not putting God to the test as if we are entitled to his care and affection and attention and power. It looks like putting him in the center of our lives by submitting to him and no other thing, by centering ourselves on him and no one else. See, the church, first and foremost, worships God. Worship ought to be the thing that marks our lives. In particular, this means we center our lives on God's word, just like Jesus. Because when we do this, when we center ourselves on God and his word, we are ready to see the world as it is. We are ready to see through the darkness and evil schemes of this world, just like Jesus. He, he knew Satan wasn't talking about bread. He knew that, G, that Satan didn't care about his hunger. He, he knew that he didn't care about his glory and his worship and how many kingdoms he had. He was after Jesus' heart. He was after Jesus' worship. So may we too not be deceived and center our lives on God himself. This is what we're supposed to do. The church is supposed to worship God. But what does, that's what it looks like perhaps generally about knowing God and obeying his word. But what does this look like more particularly? Well, the church doesn't just worship God, but also embodies the kingdom. Meet me in Matthew chapter 6. I want to take a few snapshots from what is popularly called the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' longest recorded discourses. This famous sermon popularly uh, giving a number of different ideas about what it means to be his followers, his people, his kingdom. He walks up onto a hillside, people surround him, and he begins to teach on the nature of the kingdom. And Jesus often described himself like a king who is not simply reigning but ushering in a kingdom. You see, his kingdom has arrived and arrived when he showed up. In many ways, we are not waiting for the kingdom. The kingdom is here because Jesus has touched earth's dirt. Are you with me? And yet at the same time, he says you should pray that the kingdom would come even more. That you should live in such a way where the kingdom would be ushered in even more. And this is why we say that Jesus' kingdom is already, but not yet. That his kingdom is already, but not yet. See, in many ways, we are waiting for it to fully arrive. And it will not be so until his return. See, all this to say that the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, should be understood as the ethics, the power, and the reality of Jesus' reign. So in order to understand the kingdom, you have to first see Jesus as a king worthy of worship. So if the church knows that our purpose is to worship God, then we are ready to be people who embody his kingdom. See, if Jesus is not your Lord, you can't embody the kingdom. 
there, there is sort of a, a prevailing idea in, pro, pro, in progressive culture to kind of take the ideas of Jesus as, as teacher but not submit to him as Lord. You can't do that. You have to submit to him as Lord in order to even understand what he is talking about and how to follow him. So we cannot be kingdom people unless we first bow the knee to King Jesus. So what does he say? Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. He says, beware of practicing righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So, one principle we're learning from this particular passage, Jesus says you get paid once. You can get paid in the praise of your uh, brothers and sisters, or in a crowd, or in people who see you. You can get paid in an earthly sense, or you can get paid in a heavenly sense. Your reward is either now, in the attention of mere mortals, or it is now and forever in the attention of your heavenly Father. But what particularly is Jesus getting at? Notice, he does not say, don't practice righteousness. He does not say, don't give to the needy. He does not say, don't pray in public. He says, don't do those things motivated by the adulation, attention, and praise of others. So we should be a people who do acts of righteousness. We should be a people who pray and pray in public. We should be a people who give to the needy, but not for the sake of being dis dis displaying to others our righteousness, but out of a response knowing that our Heavenly Father, who sees what is in secret, will reward us. In other words, for His glory, not, not for our own. So this is fundamentally what Jesus is getting at about the nature of the kingdom here for us, about what it means to embody the kingdom. That the kingdom is not a place, and the kingdom is not a people, who care about looking righteous, but being righteous. This is really very different. That the kingdom is filled with people, and the kingdom are, are about a people, and a place, and a community that care more about righteousness than we care about looking righteous. We care about being perceived as righteous, which is particularly tricky in this age of social media, when we constantly are putting things before people in order what? To be liked to be loved, to be seen, to be a joel, to be seen as righteous. This is really tricky for us. The Lord even has me in a season of refraining from posting because I constantly am trying to get your attention and others go, wow, what a great pastor. That, that quote was perfectly put on a gray-hued background and the right thing was said at the right time. God has filled Jason's stream with the Spirit of God. Let's keep following him. How much of our motivation in social media then really is a revelation or, or really reveals, exposes what we're really thinking all the time? Social media merely gives us an avenue for those sorts of things to happen. See, social media is not evil. Our hearts is what needs renovation. That I'm constantly motivated to get on the street corner and let people see who I am as opposed to allowing the Spirit of God to make me truly righteous. This is so different. Being seen as righteous is really fun. It's a lot of reward. It's a real joy. Being made righteous is hard. That means I have to give up the things in my heart and my mind that are not righteous. See, the church is meant to be a place and a people who do not esteem who looks righteous, but rather that which actually is righteous. This is what it means to embody the kingdom. That's the first snapshot. Now look at the second in verse 19 in Matthew chapter 6. Verse 19, Matthew chapter 6. 
Do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, having explained that the moral expectation of the kingdom, now we move from, from, from there, that moral expectation of righteous, now to, to what we can simply call as the economics of the kingdom. And we find that kingdom economics is all about what you love. It's all about where your heart is. Did you notice that at the end of verse 21? There your heart will be also. See, the issue is not what you treasure. The, the issue ultimately is that what you treasure reveals what you really love where you believe your hope is, where you believe your power is. See, Jesus doesn't say money is bad. He says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So we shouldn't refrain from money or, or any use of money. We should refrain from loving money more than we love God, trusting money more than we trust God, because wherever we treasure, wherever our hope is, that reveals our hearts. You see, in the kingdom of Jesus, there is value or reward or wealth or treasure which is unaffected by the prevailing hazards of our day. What Jesus says is you can love stuff that one day is going to rust. It will wither. Moths will bring destruction. Thieves will come in and steal. But he is saying there is a, there is a kind of treasure. There is a kind of hope. There is a kind of love which can't be stolen from you, which can't be taken from us. Now, I can tell you about the 1920s and say, I, I logic, logically, you should not treasure the stock market more than Jesus. I can tell you about 2008 and say, to treasure the housing market more than Jesus is a real problem. I can tell you about 2020 and say, really, to treasure anything, friendship, barbecues, going to school, having some semblance of order in your heart and mind and house. I would tell you, don't trust those things because you're going you're gonna to lose them. But the problem is not that we logically don't agree with that. The data is not what we have the problem with. See, you and I both know much of what we trust and what we try to protect and even protect and believe that it will protect. If nothing else, we treasure, what we treasure can be stolen by moths and rusts. See, the problem is not these things in the world. It's that we love them. It's not that logically we know they're not going to work out for us, because we, we could convince one another of that all the time. The problem is my heart gets wrapped up in them, because I am loving it, and I am not trusting and loving in the king. See, the church is meant to be a place and a people where we do not love the things that the king gives us more than we love the king himself. These things that he entrusts to us, we don't love those things more than we love ourselves. This is what Jesus is trying to say. Matthew chapter 6. That's the second snapshot. This is what it means to embody the kingdom. Thirdly, verse 28, or 25, excuse me, and following. Hear this. I was going to read this in short, but I think it's important for us as a church family to hear everything that Jesus has to say in this particular pericope, this particular moment. It says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Just let that settle. Therefore is a connecting word to what he has just said. So, so if, if we are constantly loving other things and, and it's leading to despair and anxiety, he's saying, therefore, because those things don't last, don't, don't, where, where your heart, or rather treasure is there, your heart will be also. It's going to be revealed. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food. 
and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, Jesus says. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And you not, are, are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you or you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for today, for the day is its own trouble. We are a people, are we not? Riddled with fear, anxiety, worry. I have heard from many of you these past couple of days as we've prayed together, exchanged emails. We are a people constantly toiled by fear and anxiety and worry. And in fact, when we're clinging to those things, we go back up to the previous passage and start putting our trust in money and stuff. You notice how Jesus is making this connection. That our anxiety and fear is not quieted by the things of this world. It is revealed and exponentially increased by our affection for the things of this world. So, so it's this cycle, isn't it? That Let's just take money, for instance. When I don't have money, I fear that I, I can't pay for the things that I need. And then when I have that money, I'm fearful that I won't have enough. That I won't have enough of it to buy more of the things that I want and more of the things that we need. So the thing that we thought was going to actually quiet our worry and anxiety and fear is the thing that just exposes and increases it even more. Jesus is saying you don't have to do that. You guys, this is crazy. The one thing I think that many of us could never, ever expect or imagine an existence without is fear and worry. And Jesus says you can have that. Can you imagine an existence where you don't worry about anything? I can't. So this is a confession more than anything else. I worry about you all the time. I worry about my children all the time. I worry about my wife all the time. I worry about my health and my well-being and my looks. I worry about my own strength. I worry about will I have enough to eat tomorrow? Will everything be okay? Are you going to be okay? Is the city going to be okay? Is the school year going to be okay? Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? I don't know about you, but I'm riddled with this stuff. Jesus says you don't have to do that. That's mind-blowing. That in him you can have an existence, not tomorrow, but right now. How does he say this happens? He's like, I put flowers together so that when you look at them, you would have confidence that you are of more value than them, and that if they're pretty and taken care of and have everything they need, how much more will you? You're supposed to look at the birds and just go, wow, they seem happy today. They seem like they have all they need today. Perhaps me, made in the image of God, God's going to take care of me too. Do you see, he has so orchestrated even creation that when birds fly by, you're supposed to think about him. That when you see a flower, and maybe there's not a lot in the city that you can find, but even like one of those dandelions that you know is not supposed to leak out through the cracks of that, that sidewalk, you're like, wow, that thing had everything it needed to grow right there. God be glorified, you take care of me. 
Can you even imagine if we became people like that? I wouldn't even recognize myself. Jesus says that's what embodying the kingdom's about. A people who are freed from anxiety and worry and fear, not because they find within themselves a power that is sufficient, but because everything they lack, they trust their heavenly Father for. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus tell us about the kingdom? That, that the kingdom is all about righteousness, that the kingdom is all about what you love, and the kingdom is all about trust. See, we become a people in the kingdom who are more curious about the righteousness of our king than we are about looking righteous before the world. In the economy of the kingdom, we come a, become a people who love the king who loved us first more than we care about or more than we are concerned about loving the things that the king may provide for us. We become a people who trust the power and goodness of the king more than we trust the powers of this world because that's what fear is. That's what worry is, believing that the power of this world is more sufficient, more glorious, more powerful than God himself. So as a people, as a church, we embody the kingdom when we trust his righteousness, his love, and we trust him. So the church worships God, the church embodies the kingdom of God, and lastly, the church makes disciples. See, when we worship God rightly, and when we are, are people who are about the kingdom in righteousness and love and in trust, we actually are now empowered and equipped to make disciples rightly. See, after years of shaping his people and showing them what worship looks like and teaching them about the nature of the kingdom, it is now that Jesus commissions his people, his disciples, the church, to fulfill their purpose as the church. So turn to the right, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Amen. Here's what Jesus says, his last words recorded in Matthew. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, and, and some doubted. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Excuse me, has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the church worships God, the church embodies the kingdom, and the church makes disciples. This is our purpose. And our, our disciple making, it's important to see, is a direct outworking of our worship and our embodiment. The way we make disciples is directly connected to the way that we worship God and the way that we embody the kingdom. You see, if we are not worshiping God, we'll make disciples of ourselves. We'll make carbon copies of what we value, what we esteem, and centering of ourselves. If, if we do not embody the kingdom, we'll make disciples who embody our values and the values of the world, and not the values, the ethics, and the economy, the righteousness, love, and trust of Jesus. Are you with me in this? So worship and embodiment must come first. We must be worshiping God. We must be embodying his kingdom if we're ever to make disciples of Jesus. Because that's the kind of disciples we're supposed to make. The Great Commission is to not make disciples of whatever you please as long as you're multiplying yourself. We make disciples of Jesus. Those who follow him and worship him and embody his kingdom. But what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to make disciples? This is one of those words we throw around often. We talk about discipleship a lot around here. And so it's good that we get really clear on this. And perhaps there is no better text in the Bible for us to be centered on when defining discipleship. And before we get to the specifics, what it means to make a disciple, let's just make a couple of preliminary observations. 
First, we see that Jesus says he has all authority. So we are making disciples of Jesus, for Jesus, and by the power of Jesus. Some of you are like, I think that making disciples is for the elders, or for group leaders, or those who've like gone to school. Here it is, church. If you've got the Spirit of God, if Jesus has given you the Spirit of God, and he says he has all authority, and he's looking at a bunch of people who we would have been shocked that Jesus was talking to them. We would have been shocked that these dudes were included, that these women were included in that great commissioning moment. So if you know Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've been empowered by Jesus with his authority to do what? Make disciples. Make disciples. None of us gets out of this. If the Spirit of God is in you, you've been empowered by the one who has all authority to go make disciples of Jesus, for Jesus, and by the power of Jesus. Are you with me, church? This is really exciting. This is such good news. Ephesians 4 teaches me that I'm supposed to equip the saints to do the works of ministry, which is what? Make disciples. So making disciples is not what the elders do or the group leaders do or the deacons do. We all do this together. I think that that's clear now. Thank you, God, for helping us with that. Secondly, second preliminary observation. Jesus commands us to go and make disciples of all nations, which not only tells us that this is an ongoing Day by day, moment by moment, in between the crevices of moments between work and family life and all of those sorts of things. But also that this is a multi-ethnic project of the church. With that being said, what does it mean specifically to make disciples? Four observations about discipleship from this particular text. Jesus says that making disciples is about baptism. It's about baptism. Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And so our understanding of, of making disciples must include baptism, of being marked as the people of God, washed as the people of God. Secondly, making disciples is about teaching. Jesus says teaching them. So, so some of this teaching comes as we are going, as Jesus is going. Something stops them. They have a moment. Some of it, they're sitting down and he is exhorting them and teaching them from the scriptures. But it's about teaching. It's about learning. Thirdly, making disciples is about obedience. So it doesn't stop at hearing something over a cup of coffee, but living that thing out. Jesus says, observing all that I have commanded you. Fourthly, making disciples is about trust. And this is most critical. Jesus, what does he say at the very end? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, you're going to need me to do all of this, and you'll always have me to do all of this. You're going to need me to do this, and you're going to have me to do this. See, when you're making disciples, one of the things that I'm constantly aware of whenever I'm making disciples is I need to trust Jesus more. No matter what God is teaching you, no matter what he is teaching me, he's always at least teaching you to trust him more. And so he says, I'm going to be with you. So to make disciples, it's about baptism, it's about teaching, it's about obedience, and it's about trust. See, the church worships God, the church embodies the kingdom, and the church makes disciples. This is our purpose as God's people. Can you even imagine if we actually embodied this? Can you imagine what would happen in the middle of a global pandemic? Can you imagine what would happen in our, in our blocks, in our homes, in our, in our schools? Get, get a picture for that because that's who Jesus says he's making us to be. A people who worship God. A people who embody the nature of his kingdom and righteousness and love and trust. And a people who make disciples by baptizing each other, by teaching one another, by observing the commandments together, and by trusting Jesus together. This is our hope, because when we begin to do this, I think we would witness the glory of God right here and now, 
We would begin to witness his kingdom coming more and more in the dark reaches of our city and our world, and more and more people would become disciples of Jesus. And what more could we want than that? So, Heavenly Father, we pray that that would be true for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.